Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on symptom management. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm Amber Hartman. I'm the palliative pharmacist at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and James Cancer Hospital. I'm going to do some follow-up to Dr. Wells' um, presentation about the um, diagnosis and psycholo um, psychological management of anxiety disorders and PTSD and just talk very briefly an introduction about the pharmacologic management of anxiety. We're going to specifically, um, hopefully by the time we're done, you'll be able to list the recommended first-line agents for the management of anxiety disorders, and then also describe the role of benzodiazepines in the management of anxiety disorders. So when we look at pharmacologic versus non-pharmacologic management of anxiety disorders, what you see is if you, if you compare particularly CBT versus pharmacologic therapy, they really, if, if you do monotherapy, are relatively equal efficacy. When you look at outcomes um, on measurable scales, they are, you see relatively equal um, response rates and remission rates between the two. So when you're choosing between which type of therapy to use, really looking at patient-specific factors is really important. For example, looking at the patient's preference and motivation. Some patients are just totally unwilling to start another medication, and some patients are totally unwilling to visit uh, any type of um, psychiatrist or psychologist. So looking at patient preference and motivation, the ability to, ability to engage in psychotherapy, for example, if the patient is completely um, unable to get to a psychotherapy um, appointment would be potentially a limitation. The severity of the patient's illness, both physical illness but also the severity of their psychological illness, their anxiety disorder may be a consideration. Clinician skills and expertise, availability of psychological therapies. For example, we have a lot of patients who live in very rural areas with, um, with really a lack of availability, but um, Generally, we can get patients therapy if they need it somewhere. And then comorbid conditions. And what I mean by that is, do they have a comorbid condition that would actually, such as pain or depression, that may respond really well either to a pharmacologic therapy or to a non-pharmacologic therapy? So all things to consider when you're thinking about whether to refer somebody for non-pharmacologic therapy or pharmacologic therapy. When it comes to pharmacologic treatment, even though uh, there are a number of anxiety disorders and they all differ significantly, in general, the majority of them, you can think of treating them in this really first line, second line, third line fashion. First line um, therapy for anxiety disorders really is considered to be SSRIs and SNRIs. There's relatively equal efficacy data for TCAs and MAOIs when you look at the outcomes on the other end. The problem is side effects and drug interactions. So if you think about um, tolerability of TCAs versus tolerability of SSRIs, the dropout rates in clinical trials and really in what we see clinically with TCAs is much, much higher than with SSRIs or SNRIs. And then the drug interactions with MAOIs are just so high that we really avoid those. 
Buspirone, a lot of people will tout buspirone for anxiety, but efficacy data is really um, contradictory. So we have some trials that are beneficial, some trials that are not beneficial, and those are even often within the same anxiety disorder. So it's hard to know who who the right patient is, um, and who the right and what the right disorder is to use buspirone in. So really, it's reserved for second line, just from an efficacy standpoint, not so much the side effect issues. Third line, and really considered more adjunctive therapy pregabalin and atypical antipsychotics. So there is actually some pretty decent data for pregabalin and a generalized anxiety disorder. So this would be a situation where, again, you may be thinking about the comorbid conditions that a patient may have and think about perhaps pregabalin may be a reasonable option to choose for a patient with neuropathic pain that also maybe has a generalized anxiety disorder that may even be affecting their perception of pain. Atypical antipsychotics, um, uh, quietopine and uh, risperidone and aripropazole have all been tried in these, um, in these disorders and again, utilized more as adjunctive therapy than um, primary therapy. So really, primary therapy, first-line therapy, you're talking SSRIs and SNRIs. What you don't see on here is benzodiazepines, and we'll come back to that in a moment as to why they're, they're not really on this chart, and um, we'll talk about those specifically and pull those out a little bit. With the first-line therapies and even second-line therapies, when you're looking for a response to treatment, response would be defined as an improvement in symptoms. So um, in clinical trials, looking at specific um, measures, seeing a 25 to 50% reduction in symptoms, and remission being when you see a loss of diagnostic status or significant functional improvement to where a patient's able to engage in the things that they maybe were avoiding before. I find this difficult sometimes to assess because often we get patients clinically that were started on something six months ago or a year ago by another clinician and we're just now seeing them. So sometimes it's difficult to get a good measure on whether they're responding to a pharmacologic treatment or not. Um, so it can it can be difficult. So again, asking maybe about what was their functional impairment related to their anxiety disorder and has that been improving maybe some of the best um, best measure. Um, also, um, I've, I've talked to Dr. Wells about this before and difficulty in trying to decide whether to continue with therapy or whether to escalate therapies. And one thing she said is just asking specifically what made the patient um, go to seek therapy in the first place. And so what were their symptoms? What were their signs specifically for that patient? And then trying to monitor those yourself um, can be helpful. There are some really good measures um, that, that you can utilize um, that you could measure on a, on a, at each visit, but um, in general, those aren't always done. The problem with our first-line therapies for anxiety is that re the response, you're really not gonna see a response for at least two weeks, um, up to eight weeks depending on the agent, and really maximally not for probably 12 weeks. So that becomes one of our biggest issues with pharmacologic, thera pharmacologic therapy. On top of that, some of these agents 
can actually make anxiety disorders worse initially. So you're talking about starting something that increases serotonin or increases norepinephrine. And as Dr. Wells talked about, if you're increasing norepinephrine in someone who's parasympathetic system is already a bit elevated, you likely are going to see a slight worsening in their at least um, physical sensation of anxiety for a period of time. So you really want to start doses very low with SSRIs, SNRIs, and TCAs to try to avoid some of that issue. Um, so for example, something like citalopram I would not start a patient with significant anxiety at 20 milligrams, even if they're primary issue that you're trying to treat is depression if you know that underlying there's significant anxiety I would start at 10 so usually I would start at half this I would recommend starting at half the starting dose of what you would for a patient for a, for a um, depression type um, diagnosis Generally, it's recommended to continue that first-line therapy for 12 to 24 months. Continuing it for this extended period of time does improve your symptomatic benefit, and it also helps on the other end uh, as far as... Um, uh, preventing relapse of the symptoms. So at least 12 to 24 months continuation. But the problem is once you stop those medications, so if you're, if you're relying primarily on pharmacologic therapy, the relapse rates are higher than if you have somebody who uses psychotherapy. So, so really, one thing that is an option is if you're concerned about relapse for a patient, you can actually then engage CBT at the point that you're planning to discontinue medication therapy. So maybe someone who was not able to engage in therapy before or was not motivated to engage in therapy before may be able to while they are on medications. Because it's also recommended that when you have somebody, even if you're using pharmacologic therapy, you still want patients to start exposing themselves to things that they've been avoiding, but that can be really difficult for them to do on their own. Sometimes they can with the benefits of medication therapy, but sometimes they just um, are not able to do that or, or, or lack the skills to really think through how to do that. So at that point, it, it may be helpful to engage um, psychotherapy for CBT and again has been shown to help decrease relapse rates when um, when the medication is discontinued benzodiazepines I'm not going to go into a lot of the specifics about which SSRI to choose and the differences between SSRIs and SNRIs because you guys are going to have a pharmacologic talk about depression as well and so you'll go into a lot of that with those so I want to really talk about benzodiazepines and so I want to ask you is there evidence for uh, utilizing benzodiazepines for long-term management of anxiety disorders is there any evidence how many of you would say yes how many of you would say no how many of you would say I have no idea <laughs> okay, we go. Okay, so most of you say no. Actually, there is some evidence for long-term clonazepam and um, and alprazolam for the management of anxiety disorders, even up to two to three years for benefit. The problem becomes getting the patient off of those medications and then what does it look like on the other end of that. So patients do seem to benefit, seem to get some um, some relief from them, but like for example, when you look at the particularly the alprazolam trials, 30% of patients were not able to get off of alprazolam despite multiple attempts to, to attempt to get off. And then you wonder too, you know, like 
are they really engaging fully like they could have if they would have had full psychotherapy or um, an SSRI, SNRI? We don't know. Um, so really benzodiazepines are recommended to be utilized only for short term. So again, how long does it take for an SSRI, SNRI to kick in? Yeah, so two to eight weeks, so somebody said six weeks, so somewhere two to eight weeks. So if you've got a patient who's really severe, um, or who isn't going to live two to eight weeks, your likelihood of benefit for an SSRI or SNRI is pretty low and probably isn't going to be your best option of therapy. So Dr. Wells talked about some different options for managing anxiety or worry at the end of life and also then that's where a benzodiazepine or even something like hydroxyzine may be beneficial. So they work right away. Um, the problem becomes with benzodiazepines even with short term is are you just avoiding the underlying issue? So um, that, that maybe more problem-based therapies would be more beneficial for. So so even in the short term, uh, there, psychotherapy can be beneficial. SSRIs, SNRIs probably are not going to be for a patient who doesn't have a long time to live. Benzodiazepines, maybe. Also thinking about someone who maybe only has um, anxiety when getting an MRI. And it's not this big, long anticipation. It's simply they cannot lay still while they're in the MRI. So perhaps in that situation, something super short-term, something incredibly situational may be beneficial. But keeping, keeping therapy to less than or equal to eight weeks, and that's including the taper off of the benzodiazepine, would be um, the recommendation. And again, just like SSRIs, SNRIs, if, a, if, you, if you encounter a patient who's been on a benzodiazepine for months or even years, I've had patients on deck for decades, um, it's really incredible, uh, that's really, really difficult for them to get off. But again, CBT can help with patients tapering and, and improve success in patients maintaining off of benzodiazepines in the long run. One of the other issues with benzodiazepines as compared to some of our other first-line therapies is they really are not helpful for common comorbidities. They're not going to help with depression, they're not going to help with pain, not going to help with other common um, mental health disabilities. Also the concern for addiction and abuse is something that keeps people from utilizing these for long-term use. But how many of you have prescribed a benzodiazepine? Yeah, right? Like pretty much every physician out there that's practiced for more than like one day has prescribed a benzodiazepine at some point or another. So they are beneficial to us in, in certain situations. And so it is helpful to know the difference between these agents. So when you think about differences between benzodiazepines as a, as a general thought, what are some differences that you think about? Or some distinctions one from another? Time of onset, yeah, so some kick in more quickly than others. Yes, absolutely. For example, diazepam is very, very lipophilic, so it crosses into the brain really quickly and has that super fast onset of action, okay? Duration. duration of action, so timing of onset, duration of action, good. Some are really, have a really, really long half-life and work for a really long time, which can be good in some situations and really bad, in particular, like our elderly. Um, but yeah, something that trying to choose between one or the other. What else? Uh, 
What's that? Excretion. Yeah, so they're, they're kinetics. So how are they metabolized? How are they excreted? So um, all of the, similar to opioids, all of the benzodiazepines are metabolized to some extent by the liver. Um, and then excreted, their metabolites are excreted by the kidneys. The difference becomes how are they metabolized and then what are they metabolized to that is then excreted by the kidneys. So if you look in front of you, you are all given a um, benzodiazepine comparison table. So this pulls some of those pieces out and helps you to think about some of the differences that are, that are there. So one thing that is really helpful within this table is, um, of course, benzodiazepine, benzodiazepines are not milligram per milligram equal to each other, right? So let's say, for example, you have a patient at home who is on clonazepam. Say they're on clonazepam and they take one milligram twice a day consistently. Then they come into the hospital and they can't swallow. If you're going to convert them to something, let's say IV, right, what would you think about using? Okay, so some lorazepam may be a reasonable option. Okay, so then let's say that patient's clonazepam one milligram twice a day. What would that convert to in lorazepam? as much as four milligrams of lorazepam. I think some people lose sight of how potent clonazepam is and will prescribe 0.5 of clonazepam when they would not generally think about giving two of lorazepam. So it's somewhere between two and four. So it's interesting because we see this kind of range of how potent clonazepam is. And part of that is because of the, the duration of action of clonazepam. So for example, if you look at the half-life of clonazepam, you're talking it's about 18 to 50 hours versus lorazepam is 10 to 20 hours. And so it becomes difficult sometimes to, com to convert between these drugs because not only are they not milligram per milligram equal, but some of them are going to have major carryover effects into the next day. And uh, you, can't, you can't always predict how somebody is going to, um, going to respond from a metabolic standpoint and things like that. So so you may try to be a bit more conservative, just like we do with opioids in our conversions, and use more like that on the two milligram side of lorazepam, and then titrate up if you need to, knowing that you may see that the patient may not respond exactly how you would want them to. Also, I would probably break it up into Q8 hour dosing instead of Q12 hour, because again, the half-life is not, not equivalent. Also, you'll notice on your comparison table there, midazolam is not on there. And part of that is because a comparison between them is so difficult. It's really hard to come up with an equivalence for those medications because it's so short-acting. It hits so hard and it's gone so quickly that it's really hard to say that one milligram is equal to two or whatever. Um, so. What are some other differences that you see um, within that? Let's say if you compare um, 
let's say lorazepam to diazepam, what are some other differences that you see in there? Metabolism. So, what, so what's the difference between diazepam and lorazepam, metabolism-wise? Yeah, so with diazepam, you're relying on the CYP450 system, whereas with lorazepam, it's, it's glucuronidation. So if you recall, we talked a lot about this when we talked about hepatic failure and renal failure with, um, with opioids. So with the metabolism of some benzodiazepines, you rely on the CYP450 system, mostly CYP3A4 for the benzodiazepine. So if you have to hold on to one, um, that would be something to think about. The other thing to think about is then that, brings in a lot of drug interaction concerns, right, that you could be increasing people's benzodiazepine levels. But, um, but when we think about that, again, when you have a CYP450 enzyme involved, so one, do you have active metabolites, which you can see over here with a number of these medications, you do, which only prolongs its activity again. But then what do we talk about from a hepatic failure and renal failure standpoint? Which one in hepatic failure kind of trails off first? Is it phase one or phase two? Yeah, phase one is kind of gone first. So, you, so as your liver is failing, you're going to lose that CYP450 enzyme system first. So with that, and you can see on your table, you'll see that we tend to choose lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam first in a patient with liver failure. So this is why you almost always see in a CWA protocol kind of thing, lorazepam as the drug of choice. On top of that, the active metabolite issue, so in somebody with renal failure, you're using your kidneys to get rid of the metabolites, right? So these active metabolites in someone with renal failure are going to build up. So really, lorazepam, temazepam, and oxazepam become our drug of choice in any, um, in any organ failure because they are cleared more easily by the body. Any questions about benzodiazepines? Great question. So, what's the time to onset for various ones? It really depends one on route, right? So, when you're talking about oral route, typically it's somewhere one to two hours for onset, similar to opioids. Your fastest onset for oral is usually diazepam, again, because it's so, well, alprazolam and diazepam. Um, because diazepam, one, because diazepam is so lipophilic that it crosses the blood-brain barrier so quickly. It also crosses out super fast, um, which is one reason it's not great for seizure um, issues, but, um, and then alprazolam hits so hard. So we, t we usually see that alprazolam can kick in in 30 to 60 minutes, somewhere in that range orally. So that's one reason that people love alprazolam so much. It's also one reason people have such a hard time getting off of alprazolam. So its half-life is a bit shorter and it hits really hard, really quickly. Um, so addiction tends to be, uh, anecdotally, a bit higher with alprazolam. When you're talking about onset for oral lorazepam, actually usually about two hours is the estimate. So that, that 90 minute to two hour mark is more what you would anticipate, similar with temazepam. Yeah. 
IV, we usually think about uh, IV lorazepam kicking in within 15 minutes. Um, so that's usually when we're thinking about kind of peak really maybe effects with lorazepam. The difficult thing is it's not as well defined as it is with opioids. And again, that lorazepam doesn't cross into the um, into the CNS quite as easily, but then it tends to stay there a bit longer than diazepam does. Diazepam, you give it, you would anticipate the onset would be faster with, the, with IV diazepam than it would be with IV lorazepam. So, um, Okay, any other, any other questions? This is a good question, thanks. Any other questions about benzodiazepines? With that, I just wanted to talk through a couple of cases, and again, you'll have some more um, time later to talk about SSRIs, SNRIs, but, um, but any questions you have, we can definitely talk through. But let's consider this case. So this patient was a 46-year-old female who had previously been healthy, but was... Um, diagnosed with uh, metastatic breast cancer and she had a large um, axillary mass that was affecting her brachial plexus so she had a lot of pain related to that mass and she was undergoing chemotherapy and was considering radiation to that area but she had a history of depression and generalized anxiety disorder, but she had previously gotten it under control um, pretty well with some venlafaxine that she had had some trouble coming off of, but was on it. This was a, a more long-term issue. But she was able to get off of the venlafaxine um, but then as she had this diagnosis, she just started feeling more and more overwhelmed and she came into the emergency department with, with pain in her arm, but she said she just couldn't deal with all of this anymore. She was just feeling overwhelmed by pretty much everything in life. And um, these were her medications that she was on just at that point. So morphine, 15 milligrams, immediate release, Q4, PRN pain, and she was pretty much using that around the clock at that point. Dexamethasone, 8 milligrams by mouth daily. Senna, um, 8.6 milligrams by mouth BID, and Docusate, 100 milligrams by mouth BID. So very simple medication list. So what would you guys be thinking about for her right in this minute? So, so just with that small amount of information, what questions would you have or what thoughts would you have regarding her? So how long has she been on the dexamethasone? That's a great question. So she had been on it only for about four or five days. Why do you ask that? It can be very activating. So for some people, dexamethasone can, can activate them so significantly that it feels like an underlying anxiety issue. So that is definitely something you would want to explore for her. Is, is that in and of itself making her feel revved up and anxious? Again, a medication-induced anxiety as opposed to an actual anxiety disorder. Okay. What else would you be thinking about? How often is she using the morphine? So she was using it pretty much around the clock at this point. Is morphine probably the best treatment for her pain? Probably not, because this is probably more of a neuropathic type situation. Opioids are helpful for neuropathic pain, particularly for... The, faster onset, um, but you may want to think about if this pain is a primary issue, maybe trying to use something specifically for her pain. What else? What other things would you be thinking about? So if she's taking pain that's in her she's probably not sleeping. 
Okay. Good. So is her is she sleeping well, and is that maybe contributing to her feelings of of um, feeling overwhelmed? If you were going to consider starting a medication for her for um, this history of um, major depressive disorder, if you feel like she is in de- if she's depressed right now and and anxious, what would be some medications you'd be thinking about to maybe grab some of her different comorbidities? What would medication options be for her? An SNRI would be good. Why would an SNRI be a good? Perfect. So, so an SNRI is a very good option because with that, you could uh, probably capture depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and potentially even her neuropathic pain with the norepinephrine component. What would an SSRI miss of those? Yeah, would not treat her neuropathic pain. Exactly. Right. What other medication options may be reasonable for her? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I would actually think about a TCA in her. So, again, efficacy data is relatively reasonable for um, anxiety disorders, probably very beneficial for her neuropathic pain. Sometimes it's difficult to get TCAs to doses that are um, helpful for depression. So if, if her depression was something that was something that you were concerned about, um, as you talked with her more, getting to that 150 to 225 milligram mark can be difficult for TCAs from a tolerability standpoint, from a side effect standpoint. Right. The other thing I would think about in her, if anxiety and her pain were the two major factors and depression wasn't much of an issue, I would think about pregabalin in her. Um, again, from a generalized anxiety disorder standpoint, there is some benefit there, and her neuropathic pain clearly would likely benefit from pregabalin. So I, think, I, I agree, I think the SNRs, SNRI is probably your number one choice, but for me personally, I don't see a ton of benefit from SNRIs in severe neuropathic pain syndrome. So perhaps an SNRI plus pregabalin would eventually down the road be her benefit, but thinking about those, of what, what from, a, from a medication standpoint, what comorbidities can you, can you pull in? From that standpoint, something I think about when people have an underlying depression um, with anxiety as well. And again, you'll talk about some of the differences between SSRIs, but there are a number of SSRIs that have some of that antihistamine component to them, like how we try to use hydroxyzine sometimes. So sometimes those ones don't exacerbate anxiety right off the bat quite as much. So that's an option. All right, let's think about this case together. This was a 68-year-old male with end-stage cirrhosis who was admitted to hospice. Um, He actually came into the inpatient unit, and his wife told told the team that his last drink of alcohol was about 48 hours ago, so continuing to drink despite his significant disease. So he was admitted to the inpatient unit with increasing confusion and severe shortness of breath, and when he had shortness of breath, he just would get really, really panicked. So in that type of a situation, what type, what medication would you be thinking about? Yeah, so I pro- this is a situation where a benzodiazepine is probably very appropriate for a couple of reasons. One, um, well, you guys tell me. So what are some reasons that benzodiazepine would be appropriate in this case as opposed to the last case? 
Yes, so this patient is a, is a drinker, and the benzodiazepine is going to be extremely beneficial in preventing alcohol withdrawal, and he's probably going to need scheduled benzodiazepines um, to prevent withdrawal. What else? What's that? He's in hospice. He's in hospice. So, so his his prognosis is very short, right? So this guy is not not looking good. Um, and on top of that, he doesn't have likely the time to um, to wait for an SSRI or an SNRI to work, right? And then, do you think this guy's going to be able to engage in psychotherapy? Probably not. No. Yes. So, so for multiple reasons, a benzodiazepine is most appropriate in this patient. Um, what do you think from a benzodiazepine choice? Which one would you choose, considering his clinical situation? Yeah, lorazepam. Exactly. Why would you consider lorazepam your best choice? Why is lorazepam your best choice? What's that? So it comes IV. Yes, absolutely. So that's great. From if he's not if he's not swallowing. His liver issue. So yes, in somebody with this significant of liver disease, we really want to stay away from those agents that, that require CYP450 metabolism. Lorazepam's great from the standpoint that it, um, that it is uh, only glucuronidated, so only phase two metabolism, and your liver can do that a bit longer. In reality, this guy's liver is probably going to get bad enough that he even will have some accumulation of lorazepam, but to less extent than the others. Um, and so you would still want to be careful with the, the dosing with these. Bless you. So in summary, first-line therapies for anxiety disorders really are SSRIs, SNRIs, and non-pharmacologic therapies. You really want to reserve benzodiazepines for short-term or bridge therapy only. And how long did we say you want to try to keep that timing down to? How many weeks? Less than, less than or equal to eight weeks, including the taper. Um, so coming along with that, if you see somebody who's on benzodiazepines for, let's say, 18 months. You see somebody who's been on a benzodiazepine for 18 months. How long do you think it's going to take them to get off that benzodiazepine? Have you guys ever tried to taper someone? Yeah? How long did it take you? Uh, better part of two years. Yeah, about two years. Yeah. You're talking months to years to get somebody off of a, benz off of a reasonable dose benzodiazepine. Um, so it's difficult. So keeping the duration therapy short to weeks versus months or years makes your success of getting off much easier and makes your time to tapering much much shorter. Consider that benzodiazepines may actually impair processing of anxiety with psychotherapy, and sorry, I, I left that out, but there is, there is evidence. We do have clinical trials that show us that particularly in panic disorders, adding a benzodiazepine to a patient who's willing to engage in psychotherapy is actually, actually Im impairs your benefit. So, so we have that data to show that pharmacotherapy, benzodiazepines can be harmful in those types of situations. So, um, with that, I will take any questions that you guys may have. Yes? I was just thinking of a young woman who... Um, Here, can I, do you mind if I give you this? Is that yes. okay? So 
So a, a young woman who was uh, depressed and uh, anxious, and she's been on a um, Lexapro mm-hmm. for maybe not even six months, I would guess, okay. with some improvement, and then started therapy and was trying to go off Lexapro. Mm-hmm. But when she was trying to go off Lexapro, she had insomnia, mm-hmm. increased anxiety, like irritability, so she wasn't able to uh, decrease and went back up on the dose. Okay. How would you effectively uh, get someone off of Lexapro? Okay, so how would I effectively get someone off Lexapro? And one question I would have is, so a patient who got some benefit from pharmacotherapy but had trouble coming off, I would actually wonder if they're, number one, if they're not a patient who would do better with combination therapy. So in general, it's recommended to start with monotherapy, so either pharmacologic therapy or um, non-pharmacologic therapy initially, so either CBT or the other. But in patients who are not responsive to one or the other, um, combination therapy is definitely more beneficial in those patients. And again, long-term, the combination is adding non-pharmacologic therapy is better than, than pharmacologic therapy alone. But so, so two things I would consider there. One, if she had only been on it about six months, she probably hadn't gotten optimal benefit from it from looking at the needing to be on it for 12 to 24 months to get optimal benefit. So, so that would be my first thought is, should she just remain on it um, for that period of time and then consider tapering off utilizing some of the non-pharmacologic therapies or techniques that she had, she had learned? And then, um, do you have any idea what dose of the escitalopram it was? 20 milligrams. Okay. So that's a pretty decent dose of escitalopram. So getting, definitely getting down to, to 10. Um, and then I would even try to get her to five before considering stopping. A lot of patients can get to 10 and then stop, but particularly patients with anxiety, I would try again to get to those smaller doses because they just seem to be more sensitive to those serotonin changes than other patients. Um, usually when you're going up, you, want, you don't want to make changes more frequently than every week. And I would say going down, I also wouldn't make changes more frequently than every week. And then someone who is having trouble, even going two weeks or a month between changes is, is reasonable. Yes. Is there any evidence from Neurontin and Sutherica in regards to anxiety? Good question. There is. There are some trials, but the evidence is better with pregabalin than usually with gabapentin. Now, whether that's just, you know, funding for trials or not is a good question, or or what's published and and publication bias. Then I can't one hundred percent answer that. But there there are some trials that are done with gabapentin that are somewhat conflicting. But the the data in pregabalin for generalized anxiety disorder is probably the strongest, and that's why it's recommended more um, as adjunct therapy because usually as primary therapy, it's not as good as the others. And what about so a question of visceral or hydroxyzine. So how, where does it fit in? So again, not strong trials, um, but what you will see is the benefit is short term, right? So you are going to get benefit for a period of time, but people get resistant to the antihistamine effects. And so that's really what it's doing is it's kind of calming down that parasympathetic physical response, really. So... Um, for me, it's I would fit it similar to benzodiazepines that it's more a bridge therapy or really only for short-term benefit.
but a really good option for patients that you really don't want to give a benzodiazepine to. Any other questions? Yes? Are there patients you would absolutely not give a benzodiazepine to? Are there patients I would absolutely not give a benzodiazepine to? So, for me, um, patient with a history of alcoholism, I would be extremely <laughs> um, hesitant to give a benzodiazepine to, and I think would require significant um, informed consent before you did, and a recognition of what they were getting. So like a, an alcoholic who was in recovery, it, it would be really difficult. Um, short term, so immediate benefit, um, like someone going for an MRI or something, that population of people would be pretty small that there would be an absolute contraindication. People for, um, for longer term, it's the group of patients I would recommend it for would actually be very small. So, so the patients that, that I would consider it in would be the patients who are so horrifically um, symptomatic that they just cannot wait to get to get for that medication to kick in and maybe don't have um, psychotherapeutic options so so yeah short term there are a few patients I would rec not recommend that it was an, op an option in but patients that for long term there are very few patients I would consider it yeah. any other questions all right, well, thank you guys so much for your time and attention. <laughs>